Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Genesis chapter 1. After watching uh, the video that we did this morning and having the um, dedication services we have, I was tempted to move our text to Genesis 1.28, which says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> I think that may be one command we got right, though, in church at Temple Baptist uh, certainly today as we've celebrated, as I said earlier, we have 10 babies that we brought before the Lord this morning and their parents here in the um, blended service at 9 o'clock. And then at 11.15, we'll have about seven more. So 17 babies. Um, and we do this twice a year. Sometimes people ask, how often do you do it? We do it twice a year. So how awesome is it for us to think about God's blessing upon our church and our lives uh, I always say that God wants us to be a multi-generational church. And I'm convinced that in order to be a multi-generational church, you have to have babies that come into the church, right? And there are too many churches today that aren't seeing the young families. And I praise God because it's all glory be to Him for what He is doing. And we want to continue to see that. We want to continue to minister not only to young adults, but middle-aged adults and senior adults all individuals that we come in contact with because we believe that across the age spectrum, whoever you are, you bear the image of God. What a truth. What a truth that I've wrestled with over the last few weeks as I've prepared for this message. Yes, for the last few weeks I've prepared for this day thinking about God, His work in our lives, and thinking about how He has created us in his image and the significance of that in everything that we do. I become convinced that this doctrine, that this truth of being made in the image of God informs so much of who we are and what we do. You might say it's one of the most basic truths that we have. And I, I really believe that it can be applied in our culture today across, across the spectrum. I want you to see this as we look at Genesis chapter 1 again. So we've been looking at these first few chapters the last several weeks. We've seen God's creative power. We've seen God demonstrate His personal connection to His creation. And here, once again, this is what the writer of Genesis says to us, beginning in verse 26. He says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So right here in the book of Genesis, in the very opening, opening chapter of our scripture... We are told that there is something that is unique, there is something valuable, there is something different about human life. God is creating. He, he is going about this great creative activity. And in the midst of that, he says, let us create man in our own image, according to our likeness. Notice those two words, the word image and the word likeness. The word image comes from an old Arabic root, which means to cut off or to cut out. It means to like cut out a 
pattern, if you will. Somebody has suggested that it means something like a chip off the old block. Or perhaps a pattern that has been made. The idea of likeness just simply complements that first word. Likeness means like resemblance. So in other words, God, as he was speaking, as he was thinking about creation, he said, I want to create man. And when I say man, I'm talking about humanity because God is very clear here that the image is present in man and woman, male and female. Did you notice that? I was having the conversation the other day as someone had said, well, God created man in his own image. I said, notice what the scripture says, verse 27. Yes, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So in other words, all of us, in some ways, bear the image of God. Some resemblance to God. There is something about his pattern that should be in our lives. Now, we had all of these children that were here earlier, and we're going to have those uh, later, as I mentioned. But, I mean, you can look at some of these children. You can see the, some of the physical features of their parents or grandparents, right? Oh, come on. Come on. Grandparents, some of you are here today. You could stand and you could testify and you could talk about, yes, that's definitely our side of the family coming out there. And the appearance... You know, there's, there are often resemblances that we have to our parents or to our families. Uh, we, we may appear in their likeness, if you want to use that terminology. We, we're a chip off the old block. We've been, we've been cut out, a, a pattern for us in, in so many ways. I've shared this before, and i share it again, that if you go to North Mississippi and you see a guy with a nose like mine, you probably just ran into part of my family. It's a very unique nose, large nose, a nose that is a defining characteristic of the Bridges household. It is something that that binds us together, if you will. Well, there's the likeness. There's the image that we bear. And what the Scripture says is God is... He says, humanity... Male and female, in some ways they will demonstrate a resemblance to me. They will bear my image. They will bear a part of who I am. Now, what is the image? Uh, Some theologians refer to it as the imago Dei. That is the Latin for image of God. The Imago Dei, a friend of mine who pastors up in North Carolina started a new church and he called the church the Imago Dei church, the image of God church. But what is it when you flesh it out? What does it look like? What does it refer to? I mean, what is the one defining characteristic of humanity that speaks to the image of God? Well, I wish I could answer it so simply for you today. You know, we preachers can't be too simple sometimes. But theologians have talked and they have debated for many, many years exactly what the image is. See, part of the problem is here in Genesis, and even as you look through Scripture, we have no text that says this is the image of God in a person's life. It, it, the reasoning capability, there, no, it, it doesn't say this is the exact image of God. So what we have to do is try to look through Scripture and look through the biblical witness 
and try to be true to what we do know. So what have theologians done? Well, they've said, well, the image of God could, could be relational in the sense that we are able to relate to one another. There's some truth in that. Here in this scripture, God says, let us make man. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but that is a plural pronoun, let us, which would seem strange coming from a monotheistic Jewish mind. A, a mind that would affirm one God. That They would use a plural pronoun. Now, there are some out there that say, well, that's the way the Hebrew would use. You know, sometimes they would use the plural of majesty. That was what I heard some classes that I had. A plural of majesty. It's kind of like the king. Let us go. Let us do this. Kind of like some of you as parents sometimes when you say, let us go to church. Kids, that means you get ready. We are going. Some of you don't have that problem in your household, obviously. But you use all kinds of terms that you can to try to encourage them at that moment to come on. But it's kind of like we're all involved. So sometimes they would say, oh, the kings back in the ancient day, they would say, let us. So this is just a kingly expression that God says, let us. The problem is, you never see that kind of expression in the Old Testament as, as it relates to a king of Israel. Never. You will never see that. They can try to speak about it and try to define it, but you will never see another example, I believe, in the Old Testament of where a king speaks in such a plural of majesty. What do I think it is? Well, certainly, as the progressive revelation of the New Testament came out, I believe it is a reflection of the Trinity itself. And in the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God was able to relate in this wonderful way, and God is able to relate to us as a people. So there, there is some affection for this relational idea that, that humans can relate, and thus that is the image of God within us. There are others who point to a functional type of image. And they connect it here to the passage that I read, especially verse 26 and verse 28 that we read a few weeks ago. And that is that we bear God's image as we function, as we do His work, as we have, for example, dominion over all of creation. Just as God has authority and He's given us authority, when we practice our authority over creation, then thus we are demonstrating the image of God. And there again is something that is very affectionate about that. Many of us would agree with that and affirm that. But I am convinced, like most theologians, that there is something that is deeper than just the relational aspect and the functional aspect. There is something that is substantive. There is something that is structural. There is something that is, that is at the heart of who we are that makes us up our identity. There is something about this, this image of God that is found within that cannot be described simply through relational means or functional means. There is something deep within us that is essential to our very being. Now again, we have to gather up the evidence from the scripture to try to determine what that image is and what it speaks of in our lives. Well, I would agree with so many others who would say that first, it speaks to us as being a personal being. God is a person. He has an individuality. He, he is who He is. And there's a sense when He creates us that we have a personhood, an identity. We have a soul 
that we have a self-awareness, that there is something that is distinct and unique about who we are. I didn't know necessarily his mother would be here today. I should have. She's here all the time. But uh, one of our own, Steve Lemke, wrote a paper some time ago on the image of God and presented it at Southwestern Seminary. And he was speaking about this idea of being a person, of being made in the image of God and thus being a personal being. And this is what he said. He said, like a boat that is replaced one plank at a time, the cells of the body are replaced day by day through the process of mitosis, effectively creating an entirely new body in about 15 years. That should be encouraging to some of us, huh? 15 years, we have a new body or so. However, the soul is the center, is that center of the personal identity which remains constant throughout all the outer changes of the body. In other words, you may see the body itself, but there is something that is within. There is a soul that remains consistent. There is a person that is within. I've heard it expressed this way sometimes, is that often... We think of people as a physical, that they are physical and they have a spirit. When in so many other ways we should think about how we are spirit and we have a physical body. This, praise God, this guy that you see today, this body, this is not just Reggie. Okay? Praise God for that. I got all kinds of issues with this body. Leslie reminds me all the time that I need more tests and I need more a routine in my life and all of this kind of stuff to make sure that the body's better than what it is. And some of you know that. But thanks be to him that it's not just about this body. But there's something that is within. There's a soul, there's a spirit. Just as we are personal beings, we are spiritual beings. I think that is part of the image of God at the heart of who we are. Remember John chapter 4 verse 24 says that God is spirit and if you're going to worship him, you have to worship him in spirit and in truth. So we bear the spirit of God. We are spiritual people. It is what makes us distinct from every other classification. Any other animal or plant. Now, notice in this passage, if you were to go up and look in Genesis 1, it says that Plants and animals were made after their kind. But here there is something very distinct that it says that God made us in his image. I believe to bear a spirit within. And as spiritual beings, we can relate. We can. And we can be relational beings. Now I said that there are many people who point out to the ability of God to relate in the Godhead and also to relate to his people. What God gives us because we have the spirit, because we have the soul, he gives us this unique opportunity to relate to him as spiritual beings. So get this, you and I, above all of other creation, above all other creation, we have an opportunity to relate to the God of heaven. There's something unique about that. That we can bear the image because we have the Spirit of God within us and we can relate to Him. Isn't that what we believe? Isn't that the reason we're here today? We should be here today because we have become convinced that we can relate to the God of heaven. 
And that is the reason we gather as a people to worship. It's because we believe that we can relate to Him in worship. And that hopefully and prayerfully we have had that relationship with Him throughout the week. We have cultivated that. Well, I believe as well there's something, yes, as most, most biblical writers, most theologians have mentioned, there's something about our reasoning faculty, about the rational, creative opportunities that we have because we bear the image of God. Because we bear the image of God, we can, we have the capability as a human race to reason. And that has been the typical, let me say to you, that has been the typical characteristic that has been identified throughout all of church history to speak about the image of God, that we have the opportunity to reason, be rational, creative beings. Well, certainly, if you take it back to this account, what is God doing? God is creating. God is reasoning. Let us make man. And in that sense, the Scripture points to us as being able to bear the image of reasoning, of creating in what God has given us. And certainly a moral being. The God above that we serve is a moral being. As some have su suggested, He is the holy other. He is totally different. He is transcendent in His holiness. He is different from us. But at the same time, He calls us to embrace that which is moral and righteous. He has called us to responsibility before Him. That is our bearing the image of God. That is unique. That is so different. That is only of the human race, male and female. It is only given to us. Well, Dr. Reggie, don't you believe that the image of God, perhaps we lost it during the fall? Well, I would certainly say to you this morning that sin has affected everything that we see. When we read the book of Genesis, we know that sin brought into a curse into this world that affected creation and affected humanity, affected everything. But if I read the Scriptures correctly, for example, if I were to turn over to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, which is after the fall, this is what the Scripture says. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Now think of this. God who values human life. He says if somebody takes another human life. It says. Well. That individual's life is forfeited as well. Why? This is the irony of it. Verse 6 he says. For in the image of God he made man. So still after the fall. God said that there is something about the image of God that is within man. And thus life is to be respected. Later on, Paul will reference the image of God in man in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7. Then James, in chapter 3, verse 9, James is talking about the tongue and about our speech. That's a message for another day, isn't it? But he says, with our tongue, he says, with our tongue we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. So hear that in the New Testament. In the New Testament, James still believes that we retain 
the likeness of God. So let me say to you that while sin has affected us and everything about us, and yes, there is some sense of where we will ultimately be restored to the image through Christ Jesus our Lord, all of us still, re all of us still retain the image of God. Can we recognize that this morning? That every human being, every individual, every person retains the image of God. Now that's the explanation, I think, from this passage. I was talking to Leslie through this this week. I, was, I, I don't always preach every sermon to her beforehand especially those she writes for me, but I... <laughs> I did in this one. I struggled, like I said, for the last few weeks over this because I felt like there needed to be an explanation, which I always try to give, but there also had to be an application. And I believe that this truth, as I said earlier, can be applied across our culture. I mean, if we could be reintroduced to this idea that every individual bears the image of God, that somehow that should speak to us in our conduct, our language, who we are every day. If our culture once again could understand that people are made in the image of God, it would give value to human life. It would give sanctity to life. It would speak to our uniqueness. It would speak to our difference. How I believe our nation and our culture and our people need to be reminded once again that every individual, every individual bears at least in some part the image of God. Think how that can transform your life and mine each day. To just simply apply that truth. That everybody I come in contact with, every individual, all of you who are here today, that in some way you have the image of God present in your life. So when I'm walking around, I'm at work or I'm out in the community or I'm in the hospital or I'm walking from here to there, somehow each person I come in contact with has value because they are representing the very likeness of God. That would change our attitudes oftentimes. It would change our speech. It would change our hearts to be reminded that we bear the image of God. May I say to you that it goes to the very heart of our attitudes and our actions. Jesus, Matthew chapter 5. He has given this commentary, if you will, on the commandments that the people had heard. He was trying to refocus them. We call Matthew 5 through 7 the Sermon on the Mount. He calls his disciples to a new ethic. It's the same old ethic that's been taught and preached but had been so misunderstood by the religious leaders of the day. And he said to them, he said, I want you to hear that your righteousness has to go beyond just that pharisaical righteousness that's there. Your righteousness has to go way beyond that of the Pharisees. Or listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said, if your righteousness 
does not go beyond that of the Pharisees. There's no way you enter the kingdom of heaven. Think about that just a moment. For people in the culture of that day, the Pharisees were the most righteous that you could find. They would pray and they would fast and they would give and they'd do it, of course, in front of everybody, but they did it. Jesus said, your righteousness has to go beyond just external laws and commands. And this is what Jesus said. For example, he said, you've heard it said that you will not murder, right? Everybody here would agree. You should not murder. But then Jesus says something like this. He says, but if you look at your brother or you look at another individual and you call him a raka, then you're in danger of the council going before the court itself. We talked about this Wednesday night a little bit. What does the word raka mean? Those of you who are here Wednesday night, I'm so proud of you. Like three people remembered. There were more than three people here Wednesday night, but three remembered. It means something like blockhead. Literally, raka means blockhead, empty-headed one. So if you look at your brother and you determine in your heart that that, that that man is nothing but a blockhead, he said, you better be careful. And then he uses another term. He says, if you look in another person and you call that individual a fool or you recognize him as a fool, he says, you are in danger of hellfire itself. Now, when I was in high school, I had a friend of mine, great guy, I I loved him, but every now and then he could use some colorful language. And uh, one day he heard somebody else use the word fool, and he went, oh my goodness, that guy's going to hell. And I said, what? I said, dude, I've heard you use a few things yourself, you know, that's not just very, he said, yeah, but those things aren't covered in the scripture. (laughs) I said, what? What are you talking about? He said, ah, Jesus said specifically if you say the word fool, you're going to hell. That guy's in trouble. I said, "Ah, I think you missed a little bit of what Jesus is trying to say. We often do that. What does the word fool mean? In the Greek, it is the word more, which we get our word, derive our word moron from. It literally means you are a worthless one. So Jesus said, if you look at somebody else and you've determined in your heart that that individual is worthless, you better get ready because, see, your attitude is going to lead you to an action that is not righteous. See, many of us, we could say, God, there's no doubt we've never committed murder. We've never, we've never done those active things like that. But I will say to you that we as God's people, we need to be reminded of our attitudes and our hearts. When we look at other people, instead of looking at them in a worthless way, we look at them in a God-valuing way. Every person, every individual, bears the image of God. So let me flesh it out just a few more minutes for you. And I know I only have a few more. And let me get real with you here this morning. Some of you, you're going to be uncomfortable when you leave here. Some of you are probably going to be mad. But I want you to know this morning when I come to this pulpit, I am not beholding to one political aspiration or another. God has not called me to be political. He has called me to be the prophet who is coming to give the word of God. And I believe that firmly. 
So I want to challenge us. And I'm going to tell you, I've struggled with this. Before I even tell you this, I've struggled with some of this this week. Of how this works itself out in some of our conversations. Because I think this idea that we are born in the image of God, that somehow it will impact our culture and it would change who we are if we could just get to this once again. Let me say this. We ought to affirm all life. And when life is taken, we ought to mourn for that life to be taken. What we have done today in our society has created things in such a political way that we have forgotten the very value of life itself. And now it has become a political football instead of being something that we should affirm. My friends, when a young African-American man's life is taken, we ought to mourn. It ought not to be a political issue. We ought to mourn. We ought to pray, God, what can we do to stop this? When police officers are ambushed, we ought to be outraged and we ought to pour our hearts out to God and say, God, help us to be part of the solution. Not to foster more hate, but to recognize the image of God in people's lives. He calls us to be people who would affirm. He has called us to be people who would demonstrate life even to the most vulnerable. And for us to reject those industries that somehow devalue life. My friends, I believe if we could come back to the idea of the value of human life, we would not have a pornography industry. If we would recognize that people are made in the image of God and they're not just some objects, we wouldn't have these kinds of industries most vulnerable of our society we would be taken care of because I believe the image of God is I believe the image of God is reflected in these children that were up here they're reflected in our elderly even though some cultures want to write them off in the life that they have because they can't contribute to the cultural experience anymore I believe it is up to us to stand up for the value of life even in our elderly people and for us to do what it takes to affirm that life to those who have special needs. Listen to me, friends. For those that have special needs, once again, we need to affirm the life and the purpose of those individuals. That in some way, they bear the image of God just like we do. I remember a young girl that got my heart's attention some years ago when I was at Blue Springs. I say she was a young girl. She was, Gina was about 40. And uh, she would come in and with her parents and sit with her parents. And she had some of the most joy I've ever seen. She had her own special needs in her life because of a genetic disorder. And sometimes her parents would try to keep her in the back and, you know, try to, try to just keep her quiet. She would oftentimes come to me. I was a music director at that time. I know it sounds crazy. I would be a music director, and it is crazy, by the way. <clears throat> she would say, I want to sing, Brother Reggie. I want to sing. Well, her parents would come, and they'd grab her real quickly and pull her away. They were so concerned. They were bothering me and bothering the ministry and bothering different things. One, one Sunday night, I, we had been talking, and uh, 
I talked to parents and said, why don't you let her sing? It's no big deal. Sunday night? I mean, let her sing. And they looked at me and said, you think it'd be okay? I said, I think it'd be awesome. Gina got up that Sunday night. She sang a, a song. Leslie probably can remember the exact song. I remember the, it, was, it was on a cassette tape. Just saying for some of you that's a little on up there. And it had the voices of the recording artist on it and all the other stuff. But she sang. And God got a hold of my heart that night and said, You know what? That girl right there, she bears the image of God. She may have some, she may have some difficulties, but she bears the image of God. My friends, we must once again be reminded that all people... All people bear the image of God and no one's life should be taken for granted. The most vulnerable. Again, some of you are going to... You're going to talk to me afterwards, but I'm going to run, okay? Just, just know. We also need to be thinking about those who are here from other nations that are among us, friends, immigrants, that we ought to be thinking about, thinking about and recognizing that they have value. I'm all, some of you are going to lecture me about security. I know that. I understand that. I want to be secure too. I'm thankful for a secure country. But I'm saying to you, we need to be reminded that these individuals are real people with value in their lives. And you know, God has given us a great opportunity to preach the gospel and share the gospel to the nations who have come here. We must not allow the political bickering to stop us from recognizing the value of life. Whether it's a refugee in another country or a refugee here, we ought to be affirming life. And I'll tell you what's on my heart the most, maybe not the most, But I've really been challenged this week, again, that we would recognize the life of the unborn. I want to show you a picture this morning. I think we've got it here. And no, we're not having another one, okay? <laughs> I gave this picture to Jeremy this week. Jeremy said, is there something, Dr. Reggie, you hadn't told us yet? I said, uh, no, sir, no, sir. This is a picture of Ainsley. Yeah, go ahead. You can say, ah, ah, ah. Looks like her daddy, doesn't she? <laughs> 20 weeks there in the womb. Ainsley. You can make out her face, basically, or her head, her nose. It's the bridge's nose. Yes, it is. You can see that. Now, I was going to bring the other pictures. We were trying to find them, you know, and all that. And I was going to give you all four of them. You know, you show me pictures of your kids all the time. I thought I'd show you pictures of mine. Just bring them out. My friends, when I saw Abigail for the first time in one of these, and then every successive child I've had, I've always been reminded that's life. That's my child. Once again, we need to be reminded of the most vulnerable. 
We can, we can try to argue. We can try to say this and that. My friends, I believe science is catching up with the Scripture. Technology is catching up. This is actually one area that I believe our younger people are really hearing and listening and, and coming around the affirmation of life in the womb. Some people would say, well, I believe in that. It's just, I, I don't believe we should, we should impose that on other people. My friends, that doesn't even make sense. Wayne Grudem gives one of the best arguments as he thinks about that line of thinking. He said, most of us, we would not say in our hearts, well, we just don't believe in drunk driving. Or we do, we, we don't believe in it, but we don't enforce that to anybody else. Yes, you do. You do. Because you don't want somebody else taking a life. You know that, oh, we, we are we're not in legis legislating morality. Yes, we do. We legislate morality every day. When you tell somebody they can't murder, it is because you believe that they should not murder somebody else. When you say that a person shouldn't steal, it is because of the morality that you have in your heart and your life. Don't tell me we don't legislate morality. We legislate morality. And we ought to legislate those things that would protect life. Why? Because that child right there bears the very image of God. But my friends, we can't be good enough to just say we're against it. Too many years we said we're against it without stepping up to the plate and helping and affirming. I believe God has called us to come around young families that are facing issues and say we're there with you. We don't want to just say that we're, we're there for you. We want to affirm life. In a two or three weeks, Sally and I have been talking about this and working on it. The Louisiana Baptist Children's Home will be here to do a seminar for us to get involved more in foster care and adoption. And even if we in our families don't think that's what we're called to do, I would encourage you to look for that meeting and be there because you know what? We as a church can come around and partner and say, we're going to be there for those foster families and for those adopted children. Because we want to provide life. It's not just enough to say we're against. We must be far. We must work with organizations like Life Choices and others to demonstrate the image of God and its value. Over the last few weeks, with all the political meandering back and forth, I've become more convinced of our place as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've said it for some time that if you depend upon a politician, whether he be a Republican or a Democrat, no offense, my friend Rob, <laughs> if you depend just on that individual, you have lost your way already. There is only one hope for this country, one hope for our community, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has called us to be the people. We shouldn't think of the government somehow all of a sudden turning and bringing in all that. We, as the people of God, must go and we must speak prophetically to the people around us and in a loving way remind people that all of us bear the image of God. And because of that, there is value in everyone's life. 
Some years ago, I read a book that gripped my heart. I came back to it over the last few weeks. It was written by Erwin Lutzer. It's entitled, When a Nation Forgets God. I think I've mentioned this book before. But there in Nazi Germany, some of the church leaders went right along with what was going on there. Hitler himself pretended to follow a Christian faith, which we know was false and fake. But thank God there were those ministers who stood up. Thank God there were people like Niemöller and Bonhoeffer who went to him. As they were summoned, as Hitler lectured them on peace and how it was all about the peace that he was trying to find between the church and state. He finally looked at Niemöller and he said, You confine yourself to the church and I'll take care of the German people. To which Niemöller responded, I will, God has called us as believers. He has called us as the church to take care of the people. Not just the government, but the church. That night, eight Gestapo men came into Niemöller's house and ransacked it. Eventually, as you know, many of those religious leaders were jailed. Friends, I believe we should have a prophetic voice no matter what the consequences are for us. We cannot turn our eyes away from the things that are happening. We must value human life. As I close, I read to you a passage of an individual there in Germany. A passage of what could I have done. This is what the eyewitness account said. I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from it because what could anyone do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning we could hear the whistle in the distance and then the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the train as it passed by. We realized that it was carrying Jews like cattle in the cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow. We dreaded to hear the sound of those wheels because we knew that we would hear the cries of the Jews en route to a death camp. Their screams tormented us. We knew the time the train was coming, and when we heard the whistle blow, we began singing hymns. By the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we sang more loudly, and soon we heard them no more. Years have passed and no one talks about it anymore. But I still hear the train whistle in my sleep. God forgive me. Forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians. And yet did nothing to intervene. My friends, I'm afraid that we are sitting in our churches today singing our choruses and our hymns and we are, and we are deaf to what is going on outside of these walls. May we not retreat. May we not just insulate ourselves in a building. But may we go in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we go in the truth and the power that he alone gives. May we go and may we be the prophetic voice of life to all individuals. Recognizing that each one bears the image of God. Only then will we see change. Only then will we see life restored. May we be his people.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for the power that you have given us this morning to speak, to read, to hear. God, thank you for burning in my bones and burning in my fellow believers' bones a passion for life, the value of life wherever we find it. God, I pray this morning that as we go out of this place, that we will look at our children, we'll look at our friends, we'll look at people that look totally dislike us, and we'll see the image of God today in them. And God, that will drive us in our relationships. God, we pray for your mercy and grace like never before. For our families, our culture. May we come to you. May we cry out to you. May you hear our hearts today. And Lord, we trust you, the sovereign God, to intervene. And to show us the way through your son, the Lord Jesus. Father, keep us faithful until we finally conform to the true image of your son as we see him face to face in heaven one day. We pray it now in Jesus' name, amen.